0: We're right. recording.
1: Testing the gain.
0: Test, test, test. Three, two, one. Contact.
1: Is the answer.
0: Is the reason. Wow. You know, we should get an audio clip of that as like an intro, as intro music or something.
1: No, we shouldn't.
0: No? Okay. I did kind of like one of our kids run around the house going, De Plane, boss, De Plane. Welcome to Fantasy Island.
1: Which tells you what decade we're living in.
0: I don't know. I I was I was not allowed to watch that show when I was a kid growing up. My parents were like, no, that's that's not appropriate for children.
1: I didn't even know it existed until I got Sim Farm.
0: Sim Farm had a Fantasy Island reference.
1: Yeah, yeah. Boy, that
0: sounds like a show unto itself.
1: Oh, it was a fantastic game. But no, you you'd get you could get a plane to to do crop dusting. And when you got the plane, Plane. the flavor text was de plane, boss, de plane. And I was baffled until you explained the show to me.
0: Good Lord, I explained that to you in college. Yes. Okay, well. So today, we are talking about The Awful Green Things from Outer Space uh, by Tom Wham, which is, I think, one of the silliest games I've ever played and so delightful. And we have to share it with you. Mm hmm. So, powered by Java, staring down the face of COVID 19, let's talk about Tom Wham's The Awful Green Things from Outer Space. All right. Welcome to the Play Ed Podcast where we explore cultivating connections through play.
1: Hello and welcome to the Play Ed Podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Chris. And we are here today to talk, as we discussed in our pre-show, about the awful green things from out of space. So, I'm always left with, with, when I'm thinking through a show and the game that we're going to do, you know, what's the... How are we going to present this? What things does it do? We have to take away from it, and I get stuck in academic mode. So, no, yeah,
0: <laughs> I would never have guessed that.
1: Oh yeah, well, I mean, it's it. I'm the one who spends all of my time educating the children. You are the t- one who spends time shopping online for games,
0: honey. Even before we had children, you were the Hermione Granger in this relationship.
1: Clearly. <laughs> So, recognizing that, I get very stuck easily in a, oh, this would fit so perfectly in our history curriculum, or I could kind of see squeezing that into, you know, maybe that fits with epidemiology if one was playing, for example, Pandemic, which would be very appropriate at the moment, but alas, we don't have a copy of.
0: We might need to remedy that, although it's getting harder. Yes. Oh, well. Um, so... But this one we want to play today...
1: It's really hard to present a game that's inspired by 1950s B-movies as educational, which I think provides a great opportunity to show how any game has the opportunity to teach things, even when it's not something that you could easily shove into a school curriculum.
0: Well, I think that actually speaks to a, a perspective difference that certainly you and I have, and I know we've run across it among homeschoolers, among other parents who have their kids in in um, more conventional schools. There are lots of people who look at education and if it is doesn't involve workbooks, textbooks and exams, think education and learning aren't happening. Um, and that's false. Schooling may not be happening, but that's fine. Education, learning, the development of the human person, that happens. And thats that can't happen when you're dealing with textbooks and uh, workbooks and exams. Which is why so many people who do well in school struggle when they get into the workforce. And a lot of people who are really awful students end up being wildly successful in business or in um military service or even in government. Um I remember uh there was there was a story somebody told me about an education class. Um and um the the teacher was surveying it was it was a big lecture style hall with the grand gradiated uh, seats and there were some guys in the back frat boys kind of horsing around making a ruckus and the the pencil protector the pocket protector crowd were sitting all up in the first three rows and they had their pencils at the ready and they were taking notes and they all had their you know thick glasses and were well dressed and very uptight and raising their hands and very interactive and the the professor just kind of leaned back and said you know At some point, we have to realize that all of you people in the front row are going to be working for the people in the back row, because the people who are really good become good teachers. The people who are complete screw-ups tend to end up in administration. And some people find that kind of an offensive idea, but I've seen that consistently, it's not the best analysts who become VPs or managing directors. It's the guys who understand the, the men and the women who understand the social interplay. And maybe they weren't great students. Maybe they didn't have top marks. They had good enough to get into whatever organization they're working in their first job out of college. But after that, it's all how you perform. And that's where I think one, having fun with what you're doing is more important than worrying about the content. And improvisation and the ability to adapt to circumstances becomes invaluable. And that's why I would say The Awful Green Things from Outer Space by Tom Wham is probably one of the best games we could talk about if you as a parent are trying to figure out how do I help prepare my kids for life. Because dealing with a world built on the premises of 1950s B-movies is a lot closer to what you and I deal with every day in the workforce than anything that anybody deals with in a school situation.
1: All right. So, Wikipedia at the ready. Just a little bit about the game history for All right, hour.
0: Hermione Granger, go!
1: Yes! So, The Awful Green Things from Outer Space was first published as an insert in the July 1979 edition of Dragon Magazine, issue number 28. This proved so popular that TSR published a box set the following year. After the TSR version went out of print, the rights to the game were subsequently acquired by Steve Jackson Games, which produced a new box set in 1989. The game has undergone a number of revisions over the years, and both full-sized and smaller pocketbook editions exist. That is not the first time I have seen an awesome game that started as an insert in a magazine which shows that a very small, reasonably simple to present idea, if it's got legs, will really take off.
0: So that's another lesson that can be learned by parents and children. Um, Writing games, developing games is difficult. You may have listened to our our interview with the developers for Ancient Civilizations of the Inner Sea, and they love what they do, but it is very time-consuming, and it requires an immense amount of energy, and you don't always get a hit game. One of the things you have to do if you develop games, and you have to do this whether you develop software like I do professionally, um, or you're developing curriculum the way you are, Um, or anything you do, you know, I had to do this when I was building financial models and working in banking. Any of these things that you need to do, you can try and build the perfect thing, or you can embrace an idea that's become very popular among software developers of fail fast. And so you go with relatively inexpensive components, relatively wide distribution. You try and get your ideas out there and see what has legs, what gets picked up and carried forward. Well, distributing an inex- a relatively inexpensive version of a game, very simple rules, very clearly written, some counters that can be cut out by the person receiving the magazine subscription if they want to.
1: Paste them onto a cereal box to make them a little bit more stiff, but otherwise
0: ready to go. Well, you can get a game developed and then tested in the market relatively inexpensively, especially when you compare it to getting high-quality components with really good artwork in a box set that you then try and distribute through retail. There's, There's no comparison as to how complex... The, 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 diff, how, how different those two are in complexity. But the essential activity of creating a game that people want to play is the same. And so, where I'm going with this whole LA by way of Omaha digression about game development is that one of the things we breed out of children in the way we tend to raise them in, in our culture is the willingness to fail. And then try again and fail and try again and fail and try again. And then after dozens or hundreds or thousands of failures, oh, we got a success. Great. We celebrate that and move on. When we read retrospectives of entrepreneurs who were wildly successful, we tend the the biographers tend to gloss over how many real that there were 20 year overnight successes in the making.
1: And then even the few that we do recognize for that, I mean, Thomas Edison is um, a classic of illustrating iterative learning. He wasn't necessarily making every single one of those failed light bulb designs, but he and his lab spent a lot of time trying every different combination they could until they hit on the right thing.
0: They went through it methodically and systematically until they found the one that worked optimally for the matrix they were trying to create. So and that's something else that knowing about awful green things as well as playing it can help you encourage your child. They're going to fail. That should be failure should be celebrated as long as failure is used as a learning experience.
1: As a starting point, not an ending point.
0: And so Tom Wham and and put out a whole bunch of games. There there are dozens, if not hundreds, of little games he created awful green things from outer space took off like hotcakes and it's still in print today. Lots of the other ones he did are just as charming, just as fun, just as easy to learn and easy to play, but they didn't get the traction with the audience of dragon magazine. They didn't get a full press run in the following year or two years from TSR um, now owned by wizards of the coast. Um, and, and, you know, the rights didn't get picked up by a different company like Steve Jackson Games, who helps keep it in print to this day. I found my copy at a gaming convention a couple of years ago, and I was thrilled. Because I'd been looking for one for years.
1: And this is, I think, 8th edition, 2nd printing. So... Oh my! That gives you a hint of just how many times this has gone through. And if it's out of print... Enough demand, we'll set another print run off and going. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about the gaming market is games never really die. They can fall into desuetude, but so long as there's someone who has a copyright and a knowledge of how to print it, you can always spin up a print run again.
0: Yep, absolutely.
1: So, I'm going to admit it, this is not a game I have played. I was too busy washing dishes or reading a book to a smaller child or something. You're the one who has played this with the the older children. How do you play the game?
0: Two-player game. Um, One faction, um, one player, represents the um, crew of a starship doing exploration. Um, The other player represents the awful green things. Uh, Blob-like creatures that um, multiply and um, hatch from eggs who have infected the ship and are taking it over. The play trades back and forth between the two players as the green things attempt to breed and take over the ship, eating um, the crew as they go. Um, and the crew attempts to use whatever implements they have at hand, fire extinguishers, radar guns, um, uh... Uh, conventional and unconventional weapons, uh, up to and including foodstuffs, uh, in order to defeat the green things or get a large enough number of the crew to the escape pods and escape. There are not enough escape pods for the whole crew, so it's not a viable strategy for the player of the crew to just go to the escape pods, jettison, and win. Um, one of the charming charming aspects of the game is that no one none of the players and of obviously none of the characters in game none of the players know at the outset what any given weapon will do to the green things there is um there's a matrix and each because each weapon hasn't been tested each thing that gets used as a weapon hasn't been tested on them the results are unpredictable now and so you you pick the results blindly out of a blind bag or a, or a cup and then once that result is determined well now you know what that thing does to the green things some of the some of the results are causes them to multiply causes them to grow in size some of them do Some of them will cause the green things to split into many smaller creatures, but it doesn't harm them beyond that. And so you've got this time limit to the game, because by the mechanics, if the player of the green things is at all competent, you will eventually breed enough to overtake the ship and eat all of the crewmen. The weapons experimentation to try and figure out Oh, well, the fire extinguisher is very effective, but the communications um, array is not. Well, now you've got to figure out how you're, how you're getting to the other fire extinguishers before the blobs cut you off from it. And so you've got elements of the blob, you've got elements of... Um,
1: Trouble with Tribbles.
0: Day A- the Earth Stood Still.
1: And, and so you've got that sort of, maybe not the, quite the horror level of Alien...
0: Oh, no, no, nothing like that. Definitely, definitely your 50s and 60s sci-fi B-movies, yeah. you know, Ed Wood films, monster movies. It's very much in that vein. It's very campy.
1: And so what gets what gets in the 70s turned into horror and suspense is definitely... And that's
0: because the 70s were a horrible decade of existential horror and suspense. In
1: the 50s and 60s, it was more, let's play with the idea, but there's a little bit more of a willingness to play with, one it's kind of silly, and two, we still believe in human ingenuity and the possibility that you could overcome this with a little bit of MacGyvering.
0: Yeah, before the term MacGyvering was coined, but yes. Um, So, again, the illustrations are utterly delightful. Uh, I mean, I'm looking at this sort of bloodshot eyeball in the middle of a green thing while all of the crewmen kind of run around and spray them with fire extinguishers and whatnot on the, the cover illustration of the box version we have. Um, really it's, 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 it's a, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It's a lightweight enough game in terms of simple mechanics that you can, you can pull this out. And I've seen this done at gaming conventions. You're having a beer in the bar. Somebody's got it in their bag. Couple of guys pull it out. They can carry on conversations and drink while playing the game and it doesn't interrupt the flow, you don't have to concentrate and focus on it, it's silly and silly is important, especially for us. Kids are willing to be silly. Somewhere around that that 12-13 age of not believing when we start trying to pretend that, that we know how to adult, somehow up in there we decide that silliness isn't appropriate. Maybe we had you know parents who drilled that out of us or life ground the silliness out of us. Awful Green Things from Outer Space is a silly game. And it's a good reminder that we need to be silly to be human. And one of the ways you can encourage your children is by being silly with them and engaging in creative silliness.
1: Mm -hmm. So, creative silliness and taking that opportunity to just say, some stuff is funny and laugh at it. What are some other good takeaways that you can grab from this game? What are some of the the things it's going to develop that you can take out into the real world later on? A
0: willingness to experiment. You don't know the outcomes of any given weapon use or tactic until you try them. And because of the way the game mechanics work, the same tactic may fail in one game but succeed in another. So it encourages experimentation it encourages a familiarity with failure because in this case the failure is very low cost it's a board game it's a fast playing board game it's a fast playing board game with simple rules so you win one you lose one you win one you lose one you win a whole bunch you lose a whole bunch it's okay it plays fast enough that you don't you're not you're not worried about investing a whole day and then somebody's upset because they lost it plays faster. It plays almost as fast as checkers. Um, once you're once you're both comfortable with the the the, the flow of the mechanics, um, and some games, but but as far as staying focused on on what can you learn from it, um, fun silliness and whimsy, experimentation, comfort with failure, um, and really just being able to. Look at things differently. Who would think of a fire extinguisher as a weapon? Well, some people might. But in the ordinary course of things, most people don't think of a fire extinguisher as a weapon. Most people wouldn't think of foodstuffs as a weapon. Um, But the fact is, in the game, the foodstuffs... Just like the fire extinguisher can be used as weapons by the crew against the green things. So how to adapt your surroundings for defense, but just creatively adapt your surroundings to the, to your needs in the moment.
1: Mm-hmm. And And being willing to look at unconventional things as a potential solution to your problem, to broaden the idea
0: or looking at think conventional things unconventionally yes that that frame shift that good education should do and schooling almost never does yes um and, and that includes homeschooling uh, i know i know you know when when our kids get too focused on their their books and their their worksheets they start kind of missing the forest for the uh, for the trees yeah Um, And so part of my role in the way we homeschool is to make sure everybody, including you, gets kind of pulled back to that, hey, let's understand what we're doing here. And that, you know, knowing this obscure fact about what happened in, you know, among the Ostrogoths in, you know, 355 AD is less important than kind of understanding this sweep that there are For example, there have been complex societies with complex economies prior to this one. Yes. Global communications networks are not new. Collapses of civilization and fears about a collapse of civilization are not new. Just as we worry our Internet of Things devices are going to rise up and, and, you know, devour us... Fears of servants, whether they're electronic or human, rising up and destroying the society that is dependent on them, go back to the ancient Egyptians and earlier. We've got, we've got records from ancient Mesopotamia. The important thing about knowing that isn't knowing that the records existed in ancient Mesopotamia. It's one of the reasons. Well, that's because that's a universal human fear. So... People who want to lay in guns and ammo and coffee and toilet paper and whatever in the face of, you know, the the, the the global pandemic or the collapse of currency or the end of civilization as we know it or the sweet meteor of death. Yeah, that fear is a consistent facet of human character going back to the earliest records we have.
1: And meanwhile, in the face of some impending problem you can either hide
0: which does not work in the awful green things from outer space if you try to hide from the green things they will eat you
1: so your only option is to say okay i have to do something and start trying things rapidly because the worst that happens ...is going to happen anyway. Yes. But the best that happens will only happen if you are willing to act successively and rapidly.
0: With what you have. Sitting around wishing that you had other tools at your disposal, or that your situation was other than it is, doesn't prove helpful.
1: Actually, I was just thinking of a case of an impending doom and having to use things on your own. Apollo 13. Yes. And that kind of willingness to look and say, we have to solve a problem and these are the only things we have on hand. And the scientists relaying to the astronauts, you are going to solve your problem and we're going to get you home. And here is how you are going to do it with just what you've got around you is the kind of thinking you're trying to develop. And you can't develop that kind of grace under pressure and the ability to think fast and use what you have on hand And think creatively with it unless you've experimented and practiced. And that improvisation can only be learned through practice and repetition.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And it's done best when it's done with a sense of fun and play. Because if you build that muscle of improvisation when it's silly and the stakes are low. You have it to rely on when the stakes are higher.
0: Exactly. In that sense, it's it's no different than building any other muscle, whether you're talking a physical or a mental one. You want to start with high reps, low stress, and make sure your form is good. You can gradually scale up either the reps or the load, but what you're trying to do is develop it appropriately. So you need that low that low load initially, not just to make sure you get the form correct, but so that all the connective tissue is also developed appropriately before you start putting on heavy loads. Otherwise, you cause yourself problems. You have injuries. You get sick. You end up with splitting headaches or migraines, and you just can't function. Well, if you build these things up, then you have them to use in a crisis. One of the delightful things about playing games with children is that, for the most part, they have those muscles already. We just need to not take the normal habitual steps we tend to as parents to try and get them to turn the silliness off or dial it down.
1: So we're talking about building metaphorical muscles And I think that that brings us to the question that just as there is a period where it is appropriate to build muscle and a period where it's not really going to do a whole lot of good, you have to choose exercises that are right for the person where they're at. What is the right age range for this game? Where does it start being possible to play it productively?
0: So... I have tried playing it with younger kids uh, between 5 and 7 and I find it a little frustrating and they find it very frustrating. Um, it's not the small parts it's the unpredictability. Um, younger children need games that have a lot more structure and a lot fewer options. So I would say 9 to 10 is probably the youngest I would be comfortable trying to play this with. Definitely by the time you've got a kid who's middle school aged, um should be no problem and anything older than that. The the game's pretty easy to pick up. Um,
1: And middle school to high school in some ways is almost perfect because, again, you're trying to keep both the improvisation muscles from atrophying and the willingness to be silly from getting written out. You're trying to deal with those two things that we have a tendency in that middle high school thing. We keep saying grow up, act mature, And what we mean is start using the good judgment you should be capable of in developing. And what it actually turns into is become dull, predictable, unfun, and stop trying to to do interesting things. Now,
0: let's be fair, Laura. Okay. When, when, When I'm fussing at the kids and saying, grow up, act your age, whatever, I'm, no, no. What I want them to do is stop irritating the crap out of me and stop making so much noise. True. Unfortunately, where that gets interpreted is, oh, I should just be boring and dull like my parents. Hopefully we're not super boring and dull to ours. But anyway, most kids think their parents are boring and dull.
1: Yes, I'm referring more to the fact that I had this mistaken idea somewhere around high school into early adulthood that being an adult meant I had to stop having fun and doing interesting things.
0: Honey, you carried that into the first decade of our marriage. Well, yes. So wonder it survived.
1: Yeah, it's so, so somewhere in the mid, my mid-30s that I realized, oh, I can actually still wear superhero t-shirts.
0: <laughs> and have fun with life.
1: Yeah, play yeah. games. So... Middle to high school age is probably ideal. ideal
0: yeah, Old, um, you know, uh, o- older older elementary school kids would be fine, but but again, you have to if you're going to play with a younger kid, um, they have to be children who are comfortable with everything being random. That n- n- every game, none of the behavior of the weapons and none of the tactics are reliable. Okay. And so if they can handle that amount of chaos and unpredictability, then, yeah, you can probably play it with a younger kid. Again, it's a one-on-one game. Um, we're at the point where a bunch of our kids will play it with each other as one of the many games they can play that don't have to involve us. And at this point, we have a drawer with, what, a dozen games?
1: Yeah. 18 maybe? Yeah, I was actually going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Oh, okay. Well, questions. there
0: I am, stealing your thunder.
1: I had two questions for Question you.
0: Question away. All
1: right, so the first one is, is there an age at which one might grow out of this game, or has this one got legs for years? I would
0: hope no one would ever grow out of this game. Um, I remember having friends in college, but... Um, we were we were drinking heavily as one does, and somebody pulled out a copy that they had. They were keeping theirs in an envelope because the box had gotten trashed. I don't know remember. I don't know if it was like the original one that they printed and cut out of Dragon magazine or what. Well, several of my college buddies were significantly older than I was at the time. Um, most of them had done military before going to college, and so they were all about eight or ten years older than I was. Um, for some reason, that was the crew I hung out with most most closely. Anyway, LA by way of Omaha, I've seen it played in the middle of college drinking parties. I've seen it played um, at, um, you know, gatherings of adults. Um I don't think there's an age you would grow out of it because it's just kind of fun and silly and very lightweight., um, and it's and for people who haven't seen it before, It tends to break the ice because here you are doing something that, oh, oh, well, that's, that's kind of interesting looking and people want to ask questions about it, but it's not such an intensive game that you're going to be annoyed. Mm -hmm. If you know how to play it, you know how to play it and you can pick up and play it pretty much any time So yeah, I would put no maximum age cap on this If you've got a sense of whimsy and fun Or you're looking to recover your sense of whimsy and fun or help someone do so The Awful Green Things from Outer Space uh, is a fantastic, fantastic game
1: Alright, next question So we have, you have pointed out, it's a one-on-one game You have pointed out that some of our children will play it with each other, which leads me to the pitfall question. What are the risks that you have, because it is competitive, that you are going to have tears, and what do you need to watch out for there?
0: Um, Well, hopefully, by the time they're mature enough to play it on their own, they should be mature enough to manage the tears and tantrums that might otherwise result from uh, loss. But yeah, it is a win-lose condition. If, if, if one player wins, the other, by definition, has to lose. It's a zero-sum game. Um, if one or both of the players are hung up with certain expectations, that either because in a past game a given tool worked a certain way against the aliens, um, or they had a grand strategy and it didn't quite come off, Uh, That expectations management and those aspects of self-control, if you've got children uh, or even adults who struggle with those things, well, yeah, that that may be an opportunity for tears. Uh, It can also be a growing experience opportunity. Um, There are definitely games where, because it tends to get pulled out late at night when people are tired and bored but don't really want to go to sleep, I would say this one probably has a higher-than-average number of games that end in, you know, uh, a snit between the two players. And that's where, as a parent, I have to say, okay, pack it up, go to bed. And by morning, everybody's fine. Yeah. Because that's the other thing. The stakes are so low. It's a silly, it's an obviously silly board game. Um... Yeah, I mean, there there are definitely risks in terms of it falling out of the fun zone as with any game. But again, that's another valuable thing the game can teach is learning to manage that and your reactions to it. I can't control circumstances at work. I can control how I respond to those circumstances.
1: And that's a good point. Last question. Since part of keeping things in the fun zone has to do with time involved and we had talked earlier about failing fast about how long is a typical game play could you play more than one game in an afternoon do a rematch
0: yeah absolutely um the box estimates an hour to an hour and a half i've seen games that get played through in a half hour to 45 minutes Uh, i've seen some that go on for two hours Some of it really is dependent on how attentive the players are to the game. Because if one or both of the players ends up distracted in a side conversation because they're playing this in the middle of a party, it could be a three-hour long game. It's still only about maybe an hour or so of gameplay on average between the two players if they're kind of focused. Mm -hmm. There are ways to shorten the game. Um, You can have, you know, fewer... um, pieces on each side you can decide to scale uh, the effectiveness of the weapons or their ineffectiveness um it lends itself to modification because everything's very simple and all the mechanics are kind of up front on the table um but with that said it's it's definitely one where you could play a couple in an afternoon um in that sense I would liken it to chess okay um maybe checkers depending on how you play checkers but you know chess backgammon in terms of comparable time invested for a game between two players um so yeah you can definitely do multiple rounds in 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 an afternoon without breaking a sweat while still getting dinner on the grill or having a few beers among adults and that sort of thing
1: okay I had mentioned just a few minutes ago about our game, our games drawer. And in fact, I had wanted to talk briefly about this because I observed something fascinating. So we've been doing a huge amount of renovations in our house over the last few months. Um, and one of them involved a major shifting around of several rooms. The end result of this was partially because we got some new furniture or rather, new-to-us furniture, including a coffee table. The coffee table has two giant drawers in it, perfect for storage. And you looked at me, and you said, those would be ideal for games, games the children use frequently. And about the same time as we were rearranging the office for one of the things that we needed to do, I ran across a box full of mostly card games. And our 12-year-old looked at us like, wow, I should put these in the new games drawer. And he did, and he has that Tetris ability to arrange space and the desire to keep things very neat, and he has beautifully arranged our games drawer, and he went through and he looked for all of the games that were the ones that were very popular with the five to nine-year-old set, and made sure they were in the lower drawer, and he put all of the card game-type games in the upper drawer. And our kids went from maybe playing a game a week to playing three to four a day.
0: Yes, Yes, their, their, their game playing has gone through the roof, which coincided with both of us coming down with head colds, uh, and and thus, because Teacher was sick, a, a reduction in the amount of schoolwork being done.
1: Thankfully, boredom did not overtake, because they had been made aware of the games and remembered that they had them, and they had easy access. So if one of the things you are struggling with is how do I get my kids to play more games? Maybe voluntarily play more games. One, introduce them to the card game Solitaire. That is a great way to have a child who is bored occupy themselves for 30 minutes quietly at the kitchen table while you're trying to do something. And trying to get to play games with each other. If there's a game that two kids can play together that they know the rules to, all they need to do is have access to it. And so one of the things that I had forgotten is that it's really hard to play a game when it's stored on a shelf that they can't reach. Yes. And if it's not... And there's a
0: reason that we have dozens, if not a full hundred, uh, of games that sit on shelves that the kids can't reach.
1: Yeah, there are games where they, one, need mom and dad's involvement on them, and two, they're either collectibles in one way or another, or really are too complex to be done.
0: Some but of them are too complex for me.
1: But there is no reason that Outfoxed, for example, shouldn't out be Fox, accessible. Outfoxed,
0: Sleeping Queens, um, King of Tokyo, Catan. Uh, what are the other games that we've got in there?
1: Uh, we've got all all of our expansions of pa- Castle Panic. We've yes. got a ton of card games. Uh, they rediscovered Ivanhoe the other day. Verba.
0: Uh-huh. Um, Palatinus came up, although I think that one's out of print. Yeah. Um, anyway, tons and tons of games. Uh, Awful Green Things from Outer Space, actually, in this house, uh, lives on the shelf uh, in the room that two of our teenagers occupy. Because um, they play it frequently at like 10 o'clock at night when they can't sleep, um, as teenagers tend to. So, yeah, lots more game playing happening in the house uh, because we made the games accessible. We really need to do a series on games that are accessible for that 5-9 to nine set. Um, uh, maybe even in that, that are still playable by teens. Yeah. Cause that's one of the interesting things is our oldest is almost 17 now and he will still happily play most of these games with his siblings. Um, and that, that definitely helps out at least when he's not tied up with school and programming and all the other stuff he's doing as a teenager. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, great, great success now that we've got the two games drawers and the kids can just, they've got a space that's usually clear of stuff, so it's dedicated for them to play. They can set up the game on the coffee table. It's not in the, the coffee table's just big enough for most of the game boards or for four or five of them to sit around and play with cards. Not so big that we're tripping over it as we walk through the living room, which we have a small living room in a small house so that's that's actually a big deal the last coffee table we had in there was way too big um but it doesn't take over the dining room table the kitchen table whatever the the, the table we eat the food at yes um and so they can keep the game up take a break for lunch go back to it it works out really well yeah um and yeah i i, I think Rediscovering whimsy and silliness and being willing to adapt to circumstances are among the most powerful traits that a game as simple and seemingly silly as the awful green things from outer space can offer. Um, Parents looking to build a connection with their children um, or rediscover some of their own inner child. Um, because life's about joy.
1: Yeah. So with that, I think that's a good place to wrap up for the week. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you. Please write us in if you've played this game or have another fun game that you would like to hear us talk about. We would love to hear from you. You can write to us at playedpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at playedpod. And we are on Facebook at Played Podcast. You can follow our page there. Until next time, thanks for listening.
0: Have fun. don't have your scripts no
1: i don't have my scripts what i was going to ask is did you just want to have a blank here we roll the show music and then we actually do a full intro treat that as a pre-show cold open it's not a bad cold open
0: oh i I don't care we don't need to leave blanks you can cut those in and splice this stuff around
1: oh no no i realized that oh okay it's just it's a real pain to splice it around the more we can just freely go forward the better Right. It's really hard. What? Enter the Gladiator.
0: Oh, okay. March of the day. Well, I'm glad the March of the day is Enter the Gladiator.
1: Yes. So.
0: More coffee. It is by caffeine alone that I set my mind in motion. It is by the beans of Java that the... Hands acquire shakes, the teeth acquire stains. The stains become a warning. It is by caffeine alone that I set my mind in motion. I don't know if Beethoven's in here, but we're recording a show, honey. So please don't come in and please don't look for Beethoven right now. We need a, like a a knob on that door. We've got a door, but it... It's just a door. It yes. doesn't actually have a knob on it. There's no latch. There's no catch. And it squeaks, apparently, when you open it. Yes. So. But we need to pop it down and get it painted, which won't happen this weekend with the rain coming. Yes. Oh well.
1: And we need an on-air sign. But.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's going to be a little harder to wire up.
1: Yeah. Anyways. <laughs>